Good morning. My name's Wilson. If I've not met you yet, it's really good to be here with you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew that Eric just read for us. We're in chapter 11, continuing on in our series this summer through Matthew, and we'll start in verse 16. I've, been, uh, I've gotten into Flannery O'Connor uh, this past year. Somehow as a deep southerner, I never really read her, but like just started this past year, and she's becoming one of my favorites And my favorite short story of hers is a story called Revelation. The main character in Revelation is this woman named Mrs. Turpin. She's an upstanding woman uh, in the Deep South, probably sometime in the 50s or 60s. And half of the story takes place in a doctor's waiting room where she is and where she's sitting with uh, a, a bunch of other people. And throughout the first part of the story, we hear Mr. Mrs. Turpin's interactions with all these different types of people, and we also hear her internal dialogue. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that Mrs. Turpin is a nice, upstanding Christian woman who judges absolutely everybody. <laughs> She's able to see that all that really matters is having a good disposition and being a good person. But on top of that, God has blessed her, and she's so grateful that she wasn't born white trash or black or ugly. And all along in the waiting room, there's this other young lady who's just giving her this nasty look the entire time, and her look's getting nastier and nastier. And Mrs. Turpin uh, notices this young woman and, and is kind of wondering what's going on with her. And it's right in the middle, kind of the climax of the scene, where Mrs. Turpin is pouring out her gratitude to God out loud, kind of like the Pharisee in another one of Jesus' parables, uh, pouring out her gratitude that she's got a little bit of everything and a good disposition to boot when a book comes sailing across the room and hits her right above the left eye. And it's thrown by this girl that was giving her the nasty look, who's now thrown the book at her and has rushed at her and is now choking her. And it turns out that the girl's name is, very aptly, classic O'Connor. Her name is Mary Grace. (laughs) Jesus' words today are like a book sailing across the room about to hit somebody in the eye. Elsewhere, Jesus is so gentle when he's interacting with people, but he's not gentle here. And we'll we'll see why in just a minute. Right before our gospel reading from today, we hear Jesus say this, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. He's been talking about John the Baptist for a while. And if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. In other words, Jesus is saying that John is the last signpost in a long line of signposts that were all pointing to this, to him, to Jesus, this moment, the hinge moment of all of history. And then Jesus says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? And then Jesus, grieved, frustrated, names the fact that no matter what he does, the majority of people he's interacting with aren't responding with any depth. And in typical Jesus fashion, he gives a little illustration first of what's going on. So verse 16, if you're following along. But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, people failed to play along with either gospel tune, either John's dirge of self-denial or Jesus' flute song of celebration. And then Jesus moves away from the metaphors and into the prophetic. And he sharply denounces the cities where he has been doing most of his miracles. Cities that were enamored by him for a time, but whose hearts remained as unchanged as ever. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum, you'll be brought down to Hades. Listen, these are not cities that Jesus hates. These are not the rival towns where Jesus does, just doesn't like the way that they dress or the way that they act over there. These are his towns. These are filled with people that he knows and loves. These are marketplaces that he shopped at, that he bought his bread. These are places where he worked his trade. These are cities where his friends where Andrew and, and Peter and guys like that were from. Places where he brought his healing grace in full force, left nothing undone for them. Places he loved. These are places where the mute praised the Lord with their voices and where blind people saw and deaf people heard and dead people came alive. Yet most of the people who saw these things were astonished by them as anybody would be. But it never drove down into their hearts and changed anything. And so Jesus says, woe to you. You see, what Jesus is doing with these hard words is addressing a lethal spiritual problem. And it's a lethal problem because it causes people to hear, to see, to observe, to sit in the presence of Jesus and yet have nothing change in their lives and in their hearts. It's a startling message that Jesus addresses, by the way, not to outsiders, but to insiders. And so any community who has experienced the music of the gospel and the presence of Jesus, here's this passage that's here for us in God's word still today. And, and we're forced to ask, are we responding? Is my heart changing? Am I on a trajectory towards the kingdom of God, or am I on a trajectory towards the kingdom of self? And not only that, but what would it take for our city as a whole to have a change of heart toward the master? Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus uh, calls out whole cities, he doesn't just want an isolated individual here and there. He wants everyone. He wants the whole package. So this is what we're looking at today. The gospel music is playing, and it calls for a changed heart. It calls for a changed life, for real, in response. And, of course, our passage today, uh, we learn things by negative example, we see hearts that refused response, refused change. And so we're going to look at two things today, kind of in that mode. We're going to look at first, posture of an unchanging heart. And then second, 
the posture of a heart that is ready for change. So first, posture of an unchanging heart, and second, the posture of a heart that is ready for change. So first, what is the posture of an unchanging heart here? In this passage, there are two heart postures in particular that seem to be present in the folks who wouldn't respond to Jesus. And I'd suggest these two, sloth and spiritual pride. Okay, so first, sloth as the first heart posture. When we hear sloth, we think lazy, right? So the image is a couch potato, just someone who's not doing anything. But this isn't really what sloth is, classically. The busiest person in the world could be masking the spiritual disease of sloth. Dorothy Sayers defines sloth this way. It's the whole poisoning of the will, which beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. Sloth is a state where I cannot be bothered with heart change. I am self-content. I am self-focused. I am uninterested in some good flooding into my world and trying to change where I'm at. Okay? So, for example, John the Baptist, uh, response to John the Baptist, here he comes playing the dirge of self-denial. He came neither eating nor drinking, Jesus says. He preached, if you look at what John the Baptist preached in Luke especially, he preached contentment with what you have, denying yourself good things in order to provide for others. And many people in that day were shaken awake by this message. So Luke especially says that in response to John the Baptist's fiery presence, tax collectors and soldiers, people like that, asked John, what what should we do, right? They respond to him. But many people did not like that message. They didn't mourn. They liked their place of comfort, self-contentment. And so they say, that message is crazy. He must have a demon. Sloth, unaffected, unaffected by outside stimulus trying to change the soul's posture. And so here comes along Jesus, playing a very different type of song, the flute song of celebration. Here is God in person, and he'll sit at the table with you, tax collector, and with you, sinner. He's a physician for the sick. He has total authority to forgive sins and wipe your slate clean at the drop of a hat. And many were healed. Many were forgiven. Many were amazed at these things. But many didn't like it. I don't want to get up and dance at the flute song of celebration. That guy's a, he's a drunkard and a glutton. He hangs out with those unwashed sinners that I have no interest in being around. So whatever gospel melody line is being played, dirge or flute song, sloth will keep you sitting on the curb and unresponsive to either. Okay, that's first sloth. But the second posture of an unchanging heart that we see here is spiritual pride. And this is most clearly seen in the cities that Jesus denounces. Chorazin and Bethsaida, Capernaum, 
They saw amazing things, right, like we said, with their own eyes, and they were fascinated for a time. But when Jesus turned his gaze to the people who saw these things happening and looked at them, no change of heart. It was something about these spiritually privileged places that wasn't open to the transformation that Jesus was trying to enact. Whereas pagan cities, the ones Jesus names, Tyre, Sidon, even Sodom, that Jesus mentions later, these would have been struck to the heart if they'd seen the same things. They would have welcomed the transformation. Right? Tyre, Sidon, these are cities that are not privileged with insider knowledge of God. They're spoken of pretty harshly by the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel chapter 28 being a notable example, right? These are places that were denounced for their intense greed and their wealthy, and their wealthy pride. These are cities who yield to uncontrolled human passion and appetite. But a crucial thing that they had going for them, they lacked spiritual pride. And so Jesus says quite clearly, the day of judgment will be so much more bearable for them because the sin of spiritual pride is much more deadly than sins of passion or the sins of the flesh. The grip of pride on a human heart is like iron. It can make a heart unyielding to even the most obvious overtures of grace. And pride is particularly dangerous for people who are used to being around the presence of Jesus, his people, his word, right? If we can dare to extend it today to us and put, us on, put ourselves under the, micro, under the microscope, Christians who smile and wink when they hear what Jesus says, comfortable Christians, unreal Christians, for Christians who do not look at themselves and mourn, but like Mrs. Turpin, are so grateful that Jesus is the great physician for people out there, the people who need healing, who need a miracle. Or the words of one writer, every member of a church has Jesus, for Jesus is present in his word, in his people, in his sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. He has only those who, under the impact of his miraculous grace, are actually changing. All right, there are a lot more postures of an unchanging heart, lots of vices that can trip you up, but sloth and pride are at play here, and they are both lethal. And so our question now is, what do we do about that? What is the posture of a heart that is ready for change? What's the posture of a heart that is ready to be affected? that is ready for change. And the reason that I phrase it that way, a posture ready for change, is because all the great spiritual writers throughout church history, drawing on the New Testament, insist that actual heart change is not a human achievement. God changes hearts, period. The Spirit of God creates a new man in place of the old. The Spirit of God transforms life, okay? It's too hard for you to pull off. God has to do it. The good news is that this is exactly what God wants to do. He does not have to be like convinced or cajoled, or cajoled to change someone's heart. This, is, this was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planning from eternity past to do this, right? 
This transformation is a gift. However, transformation is not a passive process. If you read Paul's letters, it is clear that the fruit of repentance, this transformation, is something that takes intentionality and vigilance and singular purpose. So Jesus, here's Jesus' voice again, speaking to the churches in Revelation. He says this to one church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's very similar to what he's saying in this passage today. There is an urgency to the Christian path. We are not talking about an urgency to get God on your side. We're not talking about an urgency to earn a gift. We're talking about an urgency to put the massive treasure heap that has been piled in our laps to use. It's like the work of a gardener, okay? The soil that a gardener tills is a gift from God, as well as the seed and the sun's warmth and the rain and the power to grow, all a gift of God, but the work is entrusted to the gardener. And the garden is the field of our heart and the harvest is eternal life. So then, we have to take a good look at ourselves and look inside there and see what the posture of our heart is, okay? If you're here today and you find yourself indifferent to the music of the gospel in kind of a spiritual lethargy, okay, it might be sloth. So can you hear the dirge of the gospel? Right, that dirge internally convicts of sin and calls for death to ourselves. Externally, the dirge looks evil and injustice full in the face and opposes all of its forms. The Christian is no stranger to sorrow. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and so his followers are as well. Or can you hear the celebration song of the gospel? Jesus frees captives. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our celebration in sorrow, the waters that we are comfortable swimming in, or are we sitting on the curb as these songs are being played right here in our midst? Are we much more often gnawed by anxiety about this and that and the other that have to do with our kingdom, not God's? Or are we much more often afflicted with irritability? Or do we catch ourselves all the time lazily kind of dreaming about our own comfort and ease? So there are three examples that I took from my own journal this week, which I'm now confessing to you in public. Sometimes it really strikes me as pretty silly that I'm the one doing this. If that's where we're at, if it's not really gospel celebration, if it's not really gospel lament, but it's these other things, and we see ourselves there, what do we do about that? Um, I'll just mention one thing, that there is a wealth of guidance out there about concrete practices to prepare our hearts to hear God and to receive his grace. We're actually going to be leaning into those practices as, as a church in the coming year, um, and doing those things in community, I'm really excited about it. 
But for now, for those of us who look up and we're we're stuck on the curb, despite the music playing, bidding us to play, this insight right here might be a good starting point. Okay, listen. It may be that the center of our being is ourselves and everything is revolving around us. When the center of our being ought to be Christ. And we may say that Christ is the center, but in lived reality, the center is me. We are the center. It may be that we are unable to respond because we are in the habit of lavishing care and concern and love on ourselves. And there is simply no room for these things to transfer to God and to neighbor and to lavish care, concern, and love in those places. We may be in the habit of always asking the question, am I happy? Am I satisfied? Is our will stubbornly set on our own personal happiness? And for those of us who would respond, yeah, duh, I'm always asking that question. That's what, we're, like, that's what everyone's looking for, right? I just want to remind you that uh, Jesus' message is not that at all. It's the total opposite. Lose your life and you'll find it. It's, it's radical. Last. Last, I, I want to look at spiritual pride one last time. It may be that if you look at your life and transformation is not happening and you're wondering what's going on, you feel stuck, it may be that spiritual pride is lurking in there. And what do we do about that? Um, I want to return to Mrs. Turpin one more time. The, uh, the money point of the story happens after she's hit with the book, actually. I'm just going to ruin the story for you. Sorry. Still worth reading. After Mrs. Turpin is hit with the book, she goes home to recover. But she can't get this startling run-in with Mary Grace out of her head. And she steadily throughout the evening becomes angrier and angrier as she begins to see it more clearly for what it was. A message from God. Right? It was grace that threw a book at her. And she's a farmer. Finally, outside while she's feeding her pigs, uh, she shouts at God, who do you think you are? And it's at this point that she sees a vision. The sun finally slipped behind the tree line, and Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black people in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, Accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. She could see by their shocked 
and altered faces, however, that even their virtues were being burned away. Humility is the antidote to pride. If there's a pride lurking in there, humility is the antidote, and grace may come in a form that you don't like. But the question is, are you ready to receive it? Or better yet, to recognize it when it comes. And I would encourage you, encourage all of us, to take extended time to pray, especially silent prayer, and to really look at what God is really like as revealed in Scripture, to look at his holiness full in the face. It's like turning your car into the, into the direct sunlight. When that sunlight floods your windshield, you see for the first time all the smudges. Look at these things and be prepared for a healing wound from God. It's the first step on the road to repentance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.